evidence and answers. Christianity and science, are they enemies or are they allies? This was the theme of this past Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Recent discoveries in science presented compelling evidence for an intelligent designer. Biochemist Dr. Fuz Rana entered into his scientific study as an atheist and was fully convinced Darwin's theory adequately explained the origin and diversity of life. However, as he studied in the field of biochemistry, he came to realize the fingerprints of an intelligent designer were undeniable. One of the most convincing evidences come from the design of the cell. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message comes from biochemist Dr. Fuz Rana, who is a featured speaker at this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Join Dr. Rana today as he presents part two of his message on cell design and how it supports the case for a creator. There's another analogy that's just been recently discovered in the last probably decade or so. And this has to do with the analogy between how computer systems are fundamentally built. Computer systems at the end of the day are systems that manipulate information, store and manipulate information. And there's an analogy between how computer systems are fundamentally structured and how biochemical systems are structured. So this is another analogy between a human design which is a computer. In in Paley's day, the watch was the pinnacle of engineering achievement. In our day, the computer is the pinnacle of engineering achievement. And what scientists have come to recognize is that computer systems are fundamentally designed in the same way as biochemical systems are. In fact, this is so much the case that there are scientists who are now building computers based on the DNA molecule. This is called DNA computing, and I'm going to talk about that here in the next couple of minutes. And this whole idea behind DNA computing and this analogy that we're talking about stems from the work of a British mathematician by the name of Alan Turing. Alan Turing is considered the father of computer science. In his day, he developed the theoretical framework that forms the basis for how computers are built. And he developed what he called a Turing machine. This is an abstract machine that Alan Turing invented to, again, give a theoretical framework for how computers would operate. And a a Turing machine consists of three parts, an input, an output, and what is called a finite control. And this is a cartoon that shows a hypothetical Turing machine, where the input is just simply a string of data that goes through, that is fed through a finite control that alters that string of data in a prescribed manner, producing an output string. And Turing's idea was that if you took a simple Turing machine that performed a simple operation and you combined it with a whole bunch of other Turing machines, you could perform very complex operations where the output strand becomes the input strand for another Turing machine. And on and on and on it goes. And it's on that basis that scientists have recognized this analogy between, again, how Turing machines function and how biochemical systems manipulate the information found in DNA. Where Gerald Adelman, who is a computer scientist at the University of Southern California about a decade or so ago, realized that when you look at how DNA is manipulated by the enzymes of the cell, the enzymes are functioning like Turing machines, and the DNA, which is a string of data, is like the input and the output. 
And on that basis, this is a plot showing in cartoon form DNA replication where the DNA double helix is essentially unraveled and the two strands are read by the cell's machinery and they're used to assemble two daughter strands of DNA. So the output of DNA replication is to take a single DNA double helix and make two copies of it that are called the daughter molecules. And this is all done by enzymes that are manipulating the DNA and they're all functioning like Turing machines where each of the enzymes performs a very limited operation on the DNA taking an input and generating a DNA strand as an output but when you combine the operation of all these enzymes together a very complex operation known as DNA replication happens. And Gerald Adelman realized that what we have here is a computer system and on that basis proposed the idea of building a computer around the DNA molecule where the computer system strands of DNA and the way that DNA is manipulated is through the enzymes that are found in the cell. And this is actually an emerging area in biotechnology where scientists are looking to aggressively build computers out of DNA. And it's not going to be that long in the future that there will be applications for this technology. And there very well may be in the, in the future computer systems that are not silicon-based but based around the DNA molecule. And this type of system has huge advantages. If you know about computer speak, what DNA computers can do is perform operations in parallel as opposed to in a serial manner. And that gives you the capacity to perform very complex operations that require massive parallelism. And DNA can store in the double helix a huge amount of data so that one gram of DNA is equivalent to about one trillion compact disks. It's an incredible amount of information and it's a very efficient operation. These computers operate near theoretical efficiencies. Now, in terms of the watchmaker argument, we now have a very provocative argument where we're now comparing not a watch to biological systems, but a computer to biochemical systems. And just as computers require the work of a mind, these computers that are found inside the cell too require a work of a mind. But what's interesting is that we are now making an analogy not between a physical machine, but we're making in biochemical systems, but we're making an analogy between an abstract machine that exists in the mind of computer scientists. So it's an incredibly provocative watchmaker argument. Now, in addition to that, there is another analogy that's been discovered about how, again, biochemical systems are structured and function and how computer systems function. And this has to do with something known as an even-bit parity code. This is a technique that is used by computer scientists to detect error in data transmission. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining how that works today just simply because of time constraints. But it turns out that embedded into the structure of DNA itself is what's known as an even-bit parity code that allows the cell's machinery to detect error if mistakes happen in data transmission as the DNA is being manipulated by the cell's machinery. Again, it's another analogy between a man-made system and a biochemical systems. Another analogy that has just been recognized has to do with the nature of biochemical information. It turns out that biochemical information is what's called algorithmic information. And that's just a fancy way of saying biochemical information is essentially a set of instructions. Algorithmic information is essentially a set of instructions.
And it turns out that biochemical information is essentially an example of matter, that is the molecules that make up life, that has information instantiated in it, and that information in turn tells the matter how to behave. So it's a really provocative way of thinking about biochemical information. It's a chicken and egg system of sorts. And the closest analogy that we know of is to another type of machine that a mathematician devised, this, in this case a German mathematician by the name of von Neumann, who developed a theoretical abstract machine called a universal constructor. And this is essentially a machine that can build any other machine, including itself. And it turns out that Paul Davies and Sarah Walker, who were at the University of Arizona, recognized that, again, information in the cell is algorithmic information, and the closest analogy to how this information is directing the function of a cell is to a von Neumann universal constructor. And again, a von Neumann universal constructor is simply, again, a machine that can make any other machine, including itself, and it has, in order to do this, it has this elaborate set of instructions that tell the universal constructor how to operate. And at critical points, when it's time for the universal constructor to make itself, that information that directs its operation is switched over and is now used as information to make another copy of that universal constructor. And this is exactly what's happening in the cell when DNA replication takes place, followed by cell division. And so again, it's provocative to think about this analogy between a von Neumann universal constructor and how the information systems are handled and function inside the cell. So I think you begin to see the point here and how this can be used to make a watchmaker argument. Now, another component of this analogy that we're talking about has to do with codes. Just as information in our common experience comes from the work of a mind, if you encounter a code, that comes from the work of a mind as well. Codes are a set of rules that relate information in one format to information in another format. And it turns out that the biochemical information in the cell is ultimately defined by a set of rules. The heart of this information system is something called the genetic code, which is a set of rules that relates information in DNA to the information expressed in proteins. And this is a set of rules that define biochemistry. There's 64 relationships that constitute the genetic code. And it turns out that these set of rules have very unusual properties, one of which is that they are designed in such a way to minimize error that can happen as a result of mutations. Mutations are changes in the genetic material, changes in the structure of DNA changes in the information content in the DNA, and that can be catastrophic if you introduce a mutation in the DNA. And it turns out the genetic code is structured in such a way to minimize the error that can happen as a result of mutations. And a few years ago, a team of researchers compared the error minimization capacity to the code found in nature, which, by the way, is a universal code. Every organism in nature has, in effect, the same genetic code. It's called a universal code. And that code, it turns out, is highly unusual in terms of its error minimization. These researchers compared 10 to the 18 random genetic codes that could have, in principle, been produced by evolution to the code found in nature and found that the code in nature is exquisitely optimized. 
In fact, this is how Simon Conway Morris described it. The genetic code found in nature displays eerie perfection and startling evidence of optimization. And so not only does a code reflect the work of a mind, and so the fact that there's a genetic code, again, reinforces this analogy that this information comes from the work of a mind. The fact that it displays extreme optimization, too, is a marker for design. Human beings optimize systems that we produce, and optimization is the reflection of the work of a mind. Now, it turns out that in addition to the DNA molecule harboring the genetic code, there's a whole host of other codes that overlie the genetic code. And I'm not going to get into the details other than to say DNA harbors multiple overlapping codes. And it turns out that the genetic code is not only optimized for error minimization, it's optimized to harbor multiple overlapping codes. And so this is a, two examples of optimization that we see in the genetic code that are critical for life's function that again point to the work of a mind. And so what we've talked about in terms of this analogy today is that again there's this remarkable relationship between the structure of biochemical systems and the structure of human language, the structure of computer systems, the structure of codes that all point again I would think I would argue to the work of a mind. And so this is the modern version of the watchmaker argument. Now, when Paley advanced his watchmaker argument, as I said, there was a criticism that came from David Hume about the logical structure of the argument, which I believe we've addressed by, again, talking about how you can reason using analogies appropriately and applying that to make a case for a new watchmaker argument based on the remarkable similarities between, again, biochemical designs and human designs. The other criticism that was leveled against the watchmaker argument is that the design in nature, the design in biochemical systems can be explained through evolutionary processes. That evolution can account for that appearance of design. And this is where the second type of argument for design comes into play. That evolution can't explain the complexity line of argumentation. Now, this is a very important component of the design argument, but it's something that we want to be careful about utilizing because what I find is that oftentimes apologists focus exclusively on this argument. That is, they oftentimes are so overwhelmed by the claims that evolution can account for the design that the first reaction is to try to demonstrate that that's not the case. And I think what we need to be doing as we make our argument for design is to do it in a disciplined way where we first make a positive argument using a watchmaker type of an approach and then after we establish the credibility for making a positive case for design we then follow it up by raising legitimate skepticism about evolutionary mechanisms capability of accounting for that complexity because if we don't what we are doing is focusing basically on what evolution can or can't do as opposed to making a true case for design we're making a negative argument for design where we're saying if evolution can't do it, then it must be design. And so we're kind of backing into that conclusion and I personally don't find that very satisfying. I'd rather make a positive case for design and then complement it by demonstrating reasons to be skeptical about evolutionary explanations for the elegance of biochemical systems. And there are two different ways that you can raise challenges to 
the capacity of evolution to explain biochemical designs. One has to do with pointing out inconsistencies between the evolutionary explanation and what we've actually have observed. We talked about that last night to a large degree. Dr. Nelson, Paul Nelson talked about that in his presentation. I talked about that in my presentation, what Darwin didn't know. But just another example has to do with the prebiotic soup. A cornerstone idea in the evolutionary paradigm is life emerges out of a prebiotic soup, a complex collection of molecules that self-organize into the very first life forms. Well, it turns out that there is no evidence whatsoever for a prebiotic soup. If a prebiotic soup existed, then we should see evidence for this soup in terms of a chemical fingerprint in the oldest rocks on Earth, and we see no evidence for this whatsoever. Noam Leiv in his book, Biogenesis, basically makes the point that nobody has ever published any kind of evidence in support of this idea that a prebiotic soup exists. And he points out that even if it did exist, the data at hand indicates that the concentration of building blocks in that prebiotic soup would be way too small to be meaningful for any kind of form of chemical evolution. So this is the type of thing that you can point to that begins to undermine evolutionary explanations for the origin of life and for the elegant structure of biochemical systems. Another way that you could argue against an evolutionary explanation is to challenge the mechanisms that people are using to account for this appearance of design. And I'm going to give you two examples of how we can go about challenging the mechanism. One goes back to this idea that there's algorithmic information that defines biochemical information. That that biochemical information is at its essence algorithmic information. Paul Davies and Sarah Walker, who again have done some work recently along these lines, basically acknowledge that nobody knows how to explain the genesis of algorithmic information in an evolutionary context. How this transition, they're referring to the transition that goes from non-trivial information to algorithmic information from non-life to life, how this transition occurs remains an open question. While we have stressed that Darwinian evolution lacks a capacity to elucidate the physical mechanisms underlying the transition from non-life to life or to distinguish non-living from living, evolution of some sort must still drive this transition. Now this is really provocative, is it not? Because Paul Davies is basically saying we have no way to account for the origin of algorithmic information from an evolutionary standpoint, but we're still convinced that somehow evolution must do it. But again, this is a point that you can see how the two arguments work together. You can talk about the algorithmic nature of biochemical information and highlight how that, that leads to this provocative analogy between a von Neumann universal constructor and how the cell functions. And then you can point out that nobody knows how to generate algorithmic information through evolutionary processes. Okay, another example of how we can go about challenging the mechanism has to do with the origin of the genetic code. Because as I said before, the genetic code displays this exquisite optimization. And if it displays this optimization, then the genetic code cannot be a frozen accident, which is what Francis Crick thought. In 1968, Francis Crick wrote a very important landmark paper called On the Origin of the Genetic Code, where he argued the code cannot evolve once it becomes established in biological systems. Therefore, it must simply be a frozen accident.
But now we have this data that says the code is exquisitely optimized, which means it can't be a frozen accident. Well, the only other way to explain that optimization from a naturalistic perspective is that it evolved, but Crick has basically shown that it can't evolve. And so you, now you wind up with this really bad problem from an evolutionary perspective. The optimization undermines the mechanism of evolution. And even if the code could somehow evolve, there's not enough time for the code to evolve. If you say the origin of life took 10 million years, there are 10 to the 70 possible genetic codes that, that conceivably could have been used in biological systems. Only one was used, and it's a highly unusual code that displays exquisite optimization. Well, if you're allowing 10 million years for evolution to work, you've got to look through 10 to the 55 codes per second to find the genetic code. If you grant 10 billion years, which some scientists think is the age of the universe, you'd still have to look through 10 to the 52 codes per second to find the genetic code in nature. There's no way that you can do this. Now, I presented this argument about a, a month or so ago at Imperial College in London. And I was debating a biochemist at Imperial College by the name of Robert Weinzierl. And when I brought up this point, his rebuttal was, you are assuming there's only one organism looking through code space to try to find the genetic code in nature. What if there were a whole collection of organisms simultaneously looking through that space? Well, if that's the case, you still don't solve the problem. Because if you have a billion organisms looking through code space for 10 billion years, it would require 10 to the 41 codes to be evaluated per second. If you allow for 1 trillion organisms for 10 billion years to search through code space to find the code that is, constitutes the universal genetic code, you still have to look through 10 to the 38 codes per second. This is a hopeless problem. There's no way to find the genetic code looking through code space, given its unusual properties. So evolution can't explain the origin of the genetic code for a number of different reasons. And so the point that I'm making is, to make the case for design, we need to use both two lines of argumentation to use analogies and we need to be thoughtful in terms of choosing appropriate critical assessments of the evolutionary paradigm but when we bring those two lines of argument together we have a very powerful case that the most reasonable way to think about the origin and the nature of life is that it stems from the work of a mind and so to me the appearance of design is inescapable and I would take a very different view from Francis Crick that it's not a due to evolutionary mechanisms, but it's due to the work of an intelligent agent. Now, one other reason why I think the use of analogies are so important when we argue for design is it takes the case for design from the realm of intelligent design exclusively into the realm of Christian theism. Uh, to me, it's incredibly provocative to think that Again, the designs that we see in biochemical systems are so similar to human designs. And this really begs for an explanation. And one way in which we can account for that similarity is to evoke the concept of the, the image of God. That is, human beings are made in God's image. And if we're made in God's image, when we create, we are functioning as many creators. And so the designs that we produce as human beings, in a sense, 
are a replica of the designs that we see in biochemical systems because we bear God's image and there's a resonance between our mind and the divine mind that we see evidence for in biochemical systems. And so again, what we're doing is we're taking this idea of an argument for design and an argument for theism and bringing it into the realm of Christian theism and, and introducing a very critical concept that is the image of God. So this allows us, as we're sharing evidence for design, to move from, again, the case for design and the case for a creator into the scriptures and, again, bring up this idea that human beings are made in God's image. And it's because we're made in God's image that we were worthy of salvation. Uh, that when we rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden and were separated from God, because we bear God's image, it was worth the effort on God's part to do what he could to redeem us, to save us, to restore that relationship, again, because we bear God's image. And so this is a, a wonderful segue from, again, the design argument to, again, ideas that are part of Christian theism to actually presenting the gospel. This concludes Dr. Fuz Rana's message on cell design, given at this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme was Christianity and Science, Enemies or Allies, and featured speakers included Dr. Fazal Rana and Dr. Paul Nelson. If you would like to hear this seminar, along with the rest of the seminars from this year's conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can listen and purchase all of the sessions from Pat and his guests. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers Radio Show is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetics Center. Join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers Radio Show is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, please visit their website at www.hcmlp.com. Join us right here next week or on the web for more Evidence and Answers.